So if you guys have your Bibles open to the Gospel of John, chapter 15, what I want to do is sort of by way of uh, introduction, sort of uh, first of all say that what's happening here in the passage is this is the last literally 24 hours of Jesus' life on the earth before he's going to be arrested. Um, in chapter 17, uh, probably in the narrative, in the story, Jesus makes his way into the garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's in the Garden of Gethsemane that basically Jesus is ultimately going to be arrested. He's going to go on trial. He's going to find himself before Pilate, before Herod, before Caiaphas. Uh, he will be tortured. He will be whipped. He will be uh, executed by morning. And Jesus will be in the grave by evening on Friday. So from this particular point, which is probably Thursday night, Jesus, all of these things will happen to him prior uh, as, as soon as the, the events take place that we're going to be reading about here. Um, interestingly, interestingly enough, in the passage, however, the apostles to whom Jesus is talking to, these guys don't even know any of this type of stuff is going to happen. They're not aware of it. They don't see the future. They don't understand, basically, the overall plan and scope of what Jesus is about to engage upon and be a part of. They just don't see it. In fact, as I mentioned in the past, uh, or several weeks ago, these apostles are basically living off of the fumes of this euphoric moment when Jesus comes into the town of Jerusalem and they see Jesus as the Lamb of God, or the Son of God, I should say, um, and, and as the King, the Anointed One, the Messiah, who's going to reign as King, he's going to overthrow Rome, he's going to set up the Kingdom of God, things are going to be finally peaceful after this great battle of getting rid of all the bad guys, Peter, James, John, all these guys are going to rule with Jesus, everything's going to be wonderful. And as I already mentioned, Jesus begins his conversation with these guys at the beginning of the night by saying, I'm going to go away. And we kind of pointed out several weeks ago that this is troubling news to the disciples. They don't understand. Why would you go away at the climax of your career? You're at the climax of your career. Everybody sees you as king. But Jesus is going to continue to expound upon that and unfold that. And whether they've grasped it or understood it or not, whatever takes place, what's going to happen is Jesus will be executed. Uh, it's just going to come to pass exactly the way Jesus had described. They're going to just simply have to live with it. They're still not going to understand it because we know even three days later, uh, there's a few disciples walking on a road, as they would do back in those days, to the city called Emmaus. Jesus comes alongside of them. He's resurrected from the dead. None of them had understood the fact that Jesus was going to die. But then after death, rise again from the dead. So here's Jesus talking to these guys. like, you guys look so bummed. What's wrong with you? They're like, haven't you heard the news? The Messiah, the guy that we thought was going to save us, he died. Dead Messiahs are worthless Messiahs, right? And that's their framework, framework of thinking. And then Jesus expounds to them how, from the Scriptures, the Messiah must suffer, must die, and must rise again from the dead. And finally, they got it. They understood. Everything was changed. Okay, so with that being said, what's happening here right now, Jesus is prepping them, not only for what's about to happen in the next 24, 48 hours, but also what will happen for the rest of their lives. Because in a nutshell, what I wanted to simply say first, and then we'll begin to kind of take a look at this bit by bit, essentially what Jesus is going to say is that you guys are going to go through great trials, great tribulations, life is going to be hard, it's going to be messy, it's going to be troublesome, people are going to want to kill you. That's his message to these guys. So, in other words, it's not, it's not cheerful, it's not happy, it's not the type of news that you hear that people really even want to hear, but it's the reality. Right, but then Jesus does offer hope, and then concludes the chapter. Alright, so that being said, what I, what I want to point out now is, is I want to jump into the bigger context of how all of this fits into history. Okay, because the circumstance of chapter 15 and then chapter 16 is what we're going to be looking at. What happens from this particular point forward, literally, within just a few short months, okay, uh, if this is, this whole event takes place on Passover, 50 days after Jesus rose again from the dead was another very important uh, religious holiday called the Feast of Pentecost. Um, the apostles are given the Holy Spirit at that particular point. Disciples are given the Holy Spirit. They go out, they preach. Then you enter into passages in the book of Acts. And one of those examples in the book of Acts is Peter's out preaching, sharing the gospel, and Peter's thrown in prison. 
So what happens is literally within 60, 70 days from this moment, Peter's already going to begin to experience the things that Jesus is talking about here. Okay? That's the context of this. So here's the question. How is it? How is it that the disciples, who are, by the way, are going to deny Jesus any day, right? Jesus gets arrested and everybody denies Jesus, right? Um, how do these disciples, who are followers of Christ, are, how are they going to now engage the culture in the midst of being attacked, persecuted, going through tribulation, going through difficulty, going through hardship, and ultimately come out victorious, like Jesus is going to promise to them? How does that happen? I think a fundamental issue that has to be understood is the makeup of who these guys are. It's essential. In other words, what made these guys who they were and subsequent disciples from that point forward? Here's what I mean by this, okay? How can just regular, everyday guys, who are just like you and I, how can these guys at some point find themselves in the near future and for the past 2,000 years find themselves attacked, brutalized, tortured, maligned, uh, unemployed, their houses ransacked, their bodies whipped, some of them killed, having their wives raped and their children destroyed? How, how all in the name of the fact that they love Jesus? How, how does that happen? I think it's in the makeup of who these guys are. What I mean by that is that these guys were disciples. A disciple is someone who wants to be just like his master. Sometimes when we think about discipleship, we think of someone who's a student, which in a sense a disciple is. He's nothing less than a student, but he's far more than just a student. Here's what I mean. Because I think in our culture, when we take the concept of student, we think of a student as being someone that sits in the classroom and basically transfers knowledge from a teacher or a leader, or someone who is an authority, transfers knowledge from them into the learner. All right? That's what a student is. I mean, when you think about it, if you went to Cal Poly or Cuesta, that's what a student is. You're, you're transferring information from teacher to student via books, via test, via lecture, so on and so forth. That's oftentimes the way that we think about a student. However, if we apply that same westernized concept to Christ and think about, oh, well, that's where a disciple is, then we have this misinformed understanding that a disciple is literally somebody that memorizes scriptures and tries to understand the text the way Jesus understood the text. And it's not less than that, but it's far more than that. Because disciples in Jesus' day did not just simply live to learn the knowledge of the Master, but they lived in such a way to be just like the Master. That's very important to understand. Their mindset was in such a way where when they looked at Jesus, they didn't just simply say, what can I learn from Him? They looked at Jesus and said, how can I be like Him? This is why the disciples would ask questions like, Jesus, teach us how to pray. I mean, why would they ask that question? Because a disciple wants to be just like his master. They, they want to pray just like Jesus prays. There's another example. Jesus is walking on water, right? It totally fits here. And Jesus is like, Peter, or Peter's like, Jesus, bid me to come. Why would Peter want to walk on water, aside from the fact it's really cool? Because a disciple wants to be like his master. If Jesus walks on water. I want to be just like my master. Right? That's what a disciple does. So here's, here's the line of thinking. A disciple says, I want to know the Torah the way my master knows the Torah. I want to pray like my master. I want to love like my master. If he's going to wash feet, I want to wash feet. I want to be just like my master. And I want to ultimately expound or extend this emulation Two, I want to suffer the way my master suffers. And it should be I want to die the way my master dies. This is what these guys were about. They weren't just students in the westernized sense. They were disciples in a Hebrew sense. We want to be just like Jesus. 
Jesus is sitting them down. He's saying, listen, here's the deal. It's going to get tough. It's going to be hard. And, and you know, almost you can say everything that Jesus is telling them that they can expect for their own lives, in just a few short moments, Jesus will experience everything himself. He will be persecuted. He will be attacked. He will be crucified. He will be put to death. So the question is, how did Jesus do all that? How did he do it? Was he angry? Was he kicking? Was he fighting? Was he cursing? How was he dealing with that? Was he slapping people who were attacking him? No, because remember, Jesus already communicated to them. He says, listen, when someone hits you on the one cheek, turn and give them the other. This is exactly what Jesus is about to fulfill. He's going to do everything he told them to do. Because I mentioned this before, Jesus will literally do and be for Israel everything that Israel could not do and be for themselves. Jesus will do it himself in his body. So here's a beautiful picture. Four days earlier was a Sunday. The moment of this great euphoria. Jesus is coming into the city of Jerusalem, riding on the back of a donkey. Everybody shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. And there's all these beautiful images and pictures of, of Jesus coming in, everybody recognizing him as the coming king. Uh, simultaneously, another thing that's very important about that particular Sunday, that Sunday marked several days prior to the Passover. That Sunday was called Lamb Selection Day. Right? It was the day which every Jewish family, under the leadership of the household, or in the household of the man, he would go through the house, or he would go outside, and he would select the lamb to be sacrificed on the day of Passover and use the blood to be put over the doorpost. That was what that particular day was. So here's the interesting thing. You have two strands of prophecy coming together. One is lamb selection day. Everybody's choosing a lamb. The other is the Messiah is coming in in fulfillment of prophecies like Daniel and so on and so forth. He's coming in as the Messiah King. It's beautiful imagery. On the one hand, everyone's selecting the Lamb. On the other hand, they're selecting Jesus as King. God's saying, listen, here's the deal. The King will be the Lamb. The King will be for Israel what Israel cannot be for herself because her sins have separated her from myself. Jesus will do in his own body as lamb who will lay his life down, humble servant, and as king who will one day rise from the dead and demonstrate the fact that he's victorious, victorious over all. In this context, Jesus is saying, you guys are my disciples. Get ready. It's a tough road ahead. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. That being said, let's jump in. I want to take a look at a handful of things before we actually just and what we're going to do, basically, I'll kind of lay it out for you. We'll get to the passage, and we'll kind of read through the entire uh, passage in just a moment here. But what I want to do is I want to basically point out three major themes that are kind of interwoven throughout the book. There's a lot of uh, text to cover, a lot of stuff to read. But I want to make sure that we, we, we get um, the main basics that are found throughout the passage. Again, because I, just, I, I, don't, I don't want them to get lost as we read through it. So the first thing I want for us to kind of notice and see is Jesus is essentially going to be telling them what will be happening to them. So some difficult things will be happening to them along the line, along the way, and then he's going to uh, basically tell them why these things will happen, but then ultimately he doesn't leave them there, so he's going to basically say, listen, I want to give you guys some hope, some hope, because even though people will hate you, even though people will do bad things against you, there's hope, because I have come and I bring hope. All right, um, before that, I want to... I Bring back to memory a story I think I told a few weeks ago. Um, there's a guy by the name of uh, Ernest Shackleton. You guys ever heard of him? He was a guy that lived kind of at the beginning of the 19th century. He was kind of one of the late, uh, last great explorers. He was a guy that basically um, had this passion, this desire to get in a boat and go and explore the poles, the South Pole. And uh, he had made one initial attempt. It didn't quite work. He came back. He uh, was trying to raise some money to be able to go back down and to do a secondary uh, exploration. Problem is, most people thought the guy was crazy, all right? Because most people in the world that day thought, hey, everything's been explored. I mean, we, we know everything, all right? There's just a bunch of white snow down there. Nothing, no big deal. We don't need to go down to the South Pole. The Shackleton was just like, we've got to go to the South Pole. We've got to go to the South Pole. So here's one of the things that he did, is that while he was trying to raise money to be able to go back down to the South Pole, 
to complete a successful mission, he needed a crew of men to take with him. Okay, so here's what he does. He puts his advertisement into the newspaper uh, in Britain. Here's what the advertisement says. It's kind of an amazing thing. Uh, the year was 1912. It says this. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return. Love this. Doubtful. <laughs> and then he says, honor and recognition in case of safe arrival home. You just got to love that. It's basically like, look, I ain't giving anybody guarantees. You're probably going to die. There's going to be a lot of darkness. It's going to be horrible, not much food. Pay's horrible. You're going to be with a bunch of smelly old men. And uh, But if we do make it back home, you'll be recognized. 5,000 people responded. <laughs> 5,000 people. What were these guys thinking? You know what I mean? But here's Jesus saying, come follow me. It's going to be tough. People will hate you. There'll be tribulation. There'll be feeling as you're getting pressed and pushed. And your soul will feel like you just want to cry out. You will lament. You will mourn. But Jesus finishes by saying, be of good cheer. Because this world is not all there is. I have overcome this whole thing. But that's where we're going to go this morning. So the first thing I want for us to take a look at before we kind of jump in even further, this is, in a sense, some ways it's kind of an introduction, but the reality is, is uh, uh, in some ways, most of this is going to be introduction, then we'll read through it, and then we'll kind of finish up. So with that, I want to kind of take a look at the first few things. So what will happen? What will take place to his disciples that he's basically going to be outlining for them? So the first thing is, take a look at about verse 18 of chapter 15. First of all, he says, the world's going to hate you. It will hate you. In verse 18, he says, if the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before. So the word that's used there for hate is this concept of like detest. It will absolutely detest you. It will hate you. You will not be a friend of this current world system. Okay? He's saying because it hated me. So be ready. Because as a follower, as a disciple, as one who wants to be like the master, be ready, be ready because part of your discipleship Program, the part of your discipleship walk will involve being hated, just like I'm hated. Okay? Second thing is this. You'll be persecuted. Verse 20 of chapter 15. He says, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And if they keep my word, they will also keep yours. The, the word persecution literally means to make run. It comes with this root word. It means to make run, to pursue, to follow after. It's this idea of like, in some ways, kind of like being stalked by the enemy. He said, they're going to stalk you. They're, going to, they're, going to, they're, they're not going to let you go. They're going to follow you everywhere you go because their intentions are evil. Right? They're, the world is going to hate you. They're going to persecute you because they persecuted me. The third thing is this. In verse uh, 2 of chapter 16, he says, they will also put you out of the synagogues. They'll put you out of the synagogues. Um, the particular word that's used here actually only appears in the entire New Testament in the Gospel of John. No other place, no other New Testament book, only in the Gospel of John. And the place that it appears in the Gospel of John, other than this particular passage, if you recall, there's a story where one time Jesus had gone into this particular area of the temple, and he noticed there was a guy there that was blind, right? And Jesus comes walking up to this guy, and he heals him. Heals him, totally heals him, all right? What happens is the guy's walking around now. He was a beggar. Now he's not begging anymore. People are kind of talking about the guy. They're like, dude, you used to be blind. You were the guy that was begging. What happened? He's like, some guy, I think his name was Jesus, came walking by, touched me, and I, and I can see. And here's the problem. The religious leaders kind of get wind of this. and like, that was on a Sabbath. You don't heal people on a Sabbath. What type of heretic would do that? Right? That was kind of the mentality. And so what happens is they track the guy down again. They're like, listen, we want to know who did this healing is like, Jesus, point him out to us. I can't. I was blind. All right? I don't know who he is. And so what happens, they end up going to his parents, the religious leaders. They go to his parents. They're like, listen, you know, what happened to your son? Is, is, he, is he, he can see now, apparently. Was he born blind? His parents are like, look, go ask him. 
And it's just like this major runaround, all right? kind of reads like a drama, right? So what happens is these religious leaders go back to the blind guy. They're like, now tell us again who heals you. And I love the guy's response. He's like, look, are you guys asking me because you too want to become believers? I mean, these guys just, I love the guys. Just classic, sarcastic, you know. And, and he's just like, listen, what's the deal? I told you once it was Jesus. I couldn't see. Now I see. I don't know what to tell you. What happens at that particular point, they kick him out of the synagogue. Apu synagogue, this is the literal word that's used here. Kicked out of, or forced to leave the synagogue. They kick him out of the synagogue. I mentioned this before in the past, but what happens is the synagogue literally was the life of New Testament Judaism. Everything surrounded the synagogue. Everything, everything revolved around the synagogue. The synagogue was the life of everything. I mean, this is where you would network. This is where you would hang out with people. Your family, for the most part, composed the synagogue. It was a very community-oriented type of a situation. For you to be excommunicated from the synagogue was not just simply like, you know, hey, you can't go to this church anymore. Now I guess I'll go find another church on the street. That's not how it worked. It, it literally meant that you were not allowed to have access to God. You were not allowed to basically join in the social uh Dimensions of culture, you couldn't be a part of it. If you had a business that was basically part of the downtown, you know, chamber of commerce, you would probably lose your spot downtown of being able to sell your goods because you're no longer part of the synagogue. You are kicked out of everything cultural, everything economic, everything religious, everything social. That's just what I meant to be kicked out of the synagogue. I love the story because Jesus ultimately finds this guy and he says, listen, they kicked you out, didn't they? That's like, yeah, Jesus says, oh, listen, I will never let you go. It's as if Jesus just has his heart of the shepherd. He says, listen, I know what you're feeling. You have lost everything right now. Everything. You've lost family. You've lost your social network. You've lost religious network. You've even probably been convinced into believing you can't even connect with God. He just tracks the guy down. He's like, listen, I will never let you go. Love that picture. But here's Jesus saying to his disciples, like, you remember the blind guy? Same thing's going to happen to you. Same thing. That's what he's saying. It's going to happen to you guys. You guys will be kicked out of the synagogue. Okay? Uh, the fourth thing is about verse 2. It says this, uh, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he's offering service to God. So the other thing he says is that you guys are going to be killed. In the bottom line, some of you will be killed. In fact, it's believed, according to tradition, that every single one of the apostles was killed, murdered, destroyed. Uh, except for a guy named John. John the Apostle. The guy wrote this book. Um, it was believed that John was attempted to be killed, according to tradition. Uh, they threw him in a big cauldron of hot oil. He wouldn't burn. He wouldn't die. They took him out and they threw him on the island of Patmos and wrote the book of Revelation. So, yeah, that was John. Uh, but the rest of them were basically were believed to have been killed. So Jesus is saying, listen, the time's going to get coming for you guys. It's going to be tough. You're going to be killed. And what happened for several hundred years is servants, disciples, followers of Jesus were killed. Do you guys even know that there are believers today that are being killed? I mean, we live in America. I mean, it's just it's like we're, we're totally closed off this type of stuff. You just don't even think about it, okay? I would encourage you guys, go on a website. I think it's persecution.org or something like that. Um, Voice of the Martyrs. Check it out. Voice of the Martyrs. And I would encourage you to take some time. Just read through it. Let's read through it. There's every single day or every other day or so, they, they actually update uh, prayer requests and stories. Of people that live in places like Iran, Indonesia, Iraq, China, North Korea, India. And these are the stories of beloved saints who love Jesus, who are just trying to be like their master. And some of them are killed. Jesus says, some of, them, some of you guys will be killed. This is what's going to happen to you. Why? Because as they killed me, so they will kill you. It's kind of an interesting uh, paradox. Because the irony is this. Here's Jesus, Prince of Life. He loves. I mean, when you, when you just simply boil Jesus' life down, He is a God coming to this world to love. To lay His life down sacrificially. All right? To give life. And that's the amazing paradox of all this stuff. It's because love gets hated. Life 
gets killed. Those who love, love, will be hated. Those who love life will be killed. And, and this is the amazing paradox in all this. And Jesus says, listen, what, what they do to me, they will also do to you. Servants not greater than his master. If they did this stuff to me, they will also do it to you. Uh, the fifth thing he's going to basically say in one verse, in verse 20, he says, you will be sorrowful, you will have weeping, and you will lament. Verse 20 says this, truly, truly, I say to you, you will lament, you will weep, but the world will rejoice. And you will be sorrowful, sorrowful, and your sorrow will be turned to joy. The picture is this. I think there's kind of an immediate uh, sense of this where Jesus is saying, listen, I'm going to die. And you guys will be really sorrowful, really sorrowful. But the reality is, is your lamenting, your weeping will be turned into joy. While you're sad, the enemies will rejoice, right? I mean, all the enemies, all the people that were looking for the moment where Christ would be crucified... They're basically looking at this and saying, listen, we're happy Jesus is dead. And all of his disciples are sad. He's saying, your lamenting will be turned to joy. But I think it's also speaking of a future sense where as the word begins to spread, as the gospel begins to make its trek around the world, there will be saints that will be out there serving Jesus, trying to be like their master, as they are disciples of Christ, their master, and they will follow in the same faith as their master. They will be killed. They will be sorrowful. They will lament. They will weep. But one day, they'll have this joy that will be completely fulfilled. Right? This concept, one day, of heaven, where we will be in the presence of God. Okay, the final thing is this. Um, in verse 33, it says this of John chapter 16. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome this world. The particular word that's used here, tribulation, is, is this concept of crushing. And it's, it's the idea of, of pressure from external sources. Um, the, the idea that is about to take, take place in just a few moments, in fact, as we kind of transition on into chapter 17 uh, next week, what's going to happen is Jesus will now make his way into a garden, a garden that's called Gethsemane. And it's interesting because the word Gethsemane literally means um, like a weightstone. The, the, I'll give you the quick little process of this. In Israel, what they would do oftentimes, they would take um, olives, and you know, olives grow everywhere, and they would have these large vats. Okay, these were called millstones, very large millstones, probably the size of maybe like four foot round, probably about this height, and there was a little trench kind of carved into the top of it. What they would do is they would take a large amount of olives, and these things were very expensive, so not everybody had olive presses, right? And um, one of the places that these things were made was in a city called Capernaum, around the Sea of Galilee. And so they would take these olives and sort of put them into this uh, millstone, and then they would basically put this large stick that would go through kind of this particular angle through a very large stone that would kind of roll. This is actually called the millstone. The other thing was called, I don't remember what it was called, the sea. It was called the sea. Um, and and th- this millstone would basically go around, crank around, and what it would do is it would, as it would roll over, you'd imagine this thing was super heavy. It's the same thing that Jesus said, listen, if someone stumbled, one of these young believers, it would be better for him to have this millstone tied around his neck, cast into the sea. Which could, I think, now I kind of see the picture of it, could either mean dump him off in the Sea of Galilee, or maybe the sea is being crushed. Either one. But the picture is this. As the olives would begin to broken open, then they would take them and put them in these baskets, these very large baskets. And they would bring them over to this large stone. The stone is kind of sometimes maybe stand about six feet, seven feet high, about this wide, or, you know, this wide, and about this thick, very high, very heavy, had a, a large trench kind of went from top to bottom of the whole thing. And as they would take these, these, these large baskets filled with broken olives, okay, I mean, they're just kind of broken, they would kind of put them down on the ground or on the top of this vat, then they would take this big stone. The stone is called the Gethsemane. They would take this stone and carefully lay this large stone on top of these olives that are broken. And as the weight of this Gethsemane would be upon these olives that have already been broken open, that weight would begin to push out, crush out the oil. And the very first round of oil would be obviously the extra virgin oil, the most choices of oil. And, and what would happen is they would just leave it on there for 12 hours a day, a couple of days at a time, to be able to squeeze out by the weight of this Gethsemane upon the olives, all, every last drop of, of fresh oil 
out of these uh, olives. And here's what Jesus is saying. The weight of the world will be on you guys. It will feel like a Gethsemane upon you. You will be crushed. It's the amazing thing. In just a few short hours, Jesus himself will do exactly what he just told his disciples would happen to them. He will walk into the Garden of Gethsemane. He will get on his knees and begin to pray. And the weight of the world will be upon him with heaviness. And Jesus will begin to sweat as if great drops of blood. He literally will be pressed underneath the weight of this world. And he will be crushed. And Jesus is saying, this is exactly, if you are my disciple, this is what will happen to you. The weight of the world will crush you. I love this. Because this all flips into this whole bigger picture. He says, but be of good cheer. I've overcome this world. When this happens to you, when these things take place, be of good cheer. There's something better. God is the treasure. God is victorious. In the same way that I will be crushed, and I will be bruised, and I will be killed, I will arise victoriously. In so many ways, what fills the writings of guys like Paul the Apostle and the songs of guys like Paul the Apostle and Barnabas while they're in the middle of prison undergoing horrible treatment, realizing this prison cell is not all that we have. It's why Paul can say something like, I I considered that the sufferings, the tribulations, the weight of this present day, it's just not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us through Christ. I mean, I wonder sometimes, do we even believe this? You know, I wonder how much of this does even grasp us and move us and affect us. I mean, sometimes we live in ways that it just doesn't even affect us. Our lives are so filled with tribulation and trials that this is the most horrible thing that could happen to our life. I mean, God forbid I got a parking ticket. This is like, this is horrible. And I understand, so, I mean, we, we have this tendency to think of things disproportionately disproportionately to the glory that will one day be revealed. I I, I just hope we see this. Okay, So what happens is Jesus is going to now tell them why all of this will take place. Why all of this will happen. There's basically four things that I kind of read through this entire passage uh, from 15 all the way to 16 that Jesus says why these things will happen to you. Verse 19 in chapter 15 gives us one of these examples. He says, the reason why these things will happen, the reason why they will hate you, the reason why they will um, be on this track to persecute you and to kill you and to crush you and to bring about tribulation upon you is because of this. First of all, it's because, in verse 19, he says, if you are of this world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of this world, therefore the world hates you. You see that? Basically, Jesus is saying, the reason why the world hates you is because I've chosen you to be out of this world. I've called you to be out of this world. It's almost as if he's saying, listen, before you were on the team, you were on the team of the world. You're basically part of it. You're going in the same direction as them. But what's happened, part of this concept of salvation, of what takes place, is prior to coming to Christ, we, the Bible says, like sheep, we've gone astray. We have, you guys, you've got to picture it this way. Our sin is not so much deduced to just simply bad things that we think about. honestly believe that so much of Christianity is we have this tendency to deduce the woes of this world to like four really bad sins. And those are like four really bad sins that get preached upon week after week after week, get drilled into our head. Like cable TV, man, that's bad. Sin. Repent. Secular music, man. You're going to go to hell if you listen to that stuff. You know what I'm saying? And, And we miss the picture, the reality of sin in the eyes of God that belittles God is our idolatry. When we prefer things over God, see, when you look at it that way, that weaves itself in everything. That can be all of these things that we talk about. That can weave its way into all of these, you know, deduction of sins that we think about. But the, don't we, we can miss so easily the heart of it all. And Jesus says, basically, because we belittle God through our sin, God sends His Son to rescue us. This rescuing is 
what the Bible would term being born again. Jesus opens our eyes. And He snatches us out of the fire. Out of the judgment of God. And He saves us. And now we belong to Him. And it's, it's, it's that, this mentality, this anger, this frustration. You're no longer part of us. And it's because Jesus says, they will hate you because I saved you. Because I rescued you. It's the same idea where Paul says, listen, there was a time where we used to walk according to the course of this world. That's the idea. We used to walk according to the course of this world. We were by nature children of wrath, just as everybody else. But God, who is rich in grace and mercy for which he has loved us, has saved us. By grace, we are saved through faith. Not not of ourselves. In other words, God snatched us out of this path that we were going, totally oblivious, and redirected us. And the world sees that and says, I hate you. I hate you. Who are you? Don't judge me. Sometimes, have you noticed sometimes you, you might not even be judging people, right? You just be like standing there, right? And people are like, you're judging me. I ain't not judging you at all. I'm getting a cup of coffee. Are you kidding me? You know, it's just like, Sometimes just your very presence can be a little bit discomforting for people. Have you noticed that? And sometimes Christians are obnoxious. I have to admit. I mean, I'm going to go to the other extreme too to say, because sometimes Christians can be like, mm, 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 what are you doing? God hates that. You know, I mean, it's like we try to be fake Holy Spirit, you know? It's like, come on. And, and, and sometimes we, you know, we get people angry at us, but it's not because of Jesus in us, it's because we're obnoxious. Right? And so the reality is that Jesus says, because I've chosen you, there will be those that will hate you. Okay? The second thing that he says about verse 20, he says this, um, remember the world, or the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So he's saying, they will hate you because they hated me. Because they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. It's connection. The third thing is this, verse 21 he says, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name. In other words, because we have this association, this affinity with Christ, we're with Christ, associated with him. The world sees this association and doesn't like it. Okay? The final thing that I see in verse 3 says this, um, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. There's an, there's an ignorance. There's a sense of not knowing who God is, not knowing what God is like. And therefore, this ignorance of what God is like or who God is like leads to the default mode of human existence, which is oftentimes anger. Maybe you notice, I mean, like the default mode of humanity is like anger. And this is why there's like classes today, like, here's how to be happy. Well, why, why do we need a class on how to be happy? Read a book on how to be happy. Because we're not happy. I mean, we're like prone to, I mean, we're like the Wild West people. You know, we're like going out there, we're staking our claim, we're like, this is mine. Right? You, you, you violated my claim. I'm angry with you. Right? You took advantage of me. I'm angry with you. And we have these tendencies to just kind of like, to make sure we mark out our space. And, and, and when our space kind of gets encroached upon, we get angry. That's kind of how we live. Because we think, we live under this illusion that if I can gather as much as I can, I'm, I'm going I'm to be happy. So we, we live this life where it's like, this is mine, this is mine. And here's what Jesus does. He sets us free and says, listen, none of it's yours. It's all mine. And when our, when our eyes are open to that, we realize, ah, it's all Jesus's. You're the most free person in the world. Because if your car gets stolen... The mentality can be, can be, not always is, but can be. <sighs> but it was my car now. It's God's. Your house burns down. Dang it, I don't have a house right now. But you know, God is yours. You're going to provide for me. And the reality is that those are the freest people to live in such a way that everything in my life belongs to to God. And there's that association. And when people don't live with that understanding, 
we're left to the default mode, which is sinfulness. And, and because they don't know the Father, they don't know the Father's freedom, they don't know the Father's liberty, God never gets angry with Jesus for taking up his space. Jesus never gets frustrated with the Spirit. That's my solar system. Give it back. You know, it's just like it just doesn't happen. They share everything. But when people don't know the Father or the Son, all we're left with is just a default mode, which is survival. And those that are in the Father, associated with the Father, tend to become the tangible victims of frustration. That's what Jesus is saying. They hate me because they don't know the Father. They will also hate you. And the final thing is that Jesus gives us hope. Okay, check this out. Verse 26 of 15. Jesus offers us hope because the goal of this whole little message that Jesus is communicating to his disciples is not just to get them down. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's Jesus' heart is not to be like, look, you guys, you guys are a little bit too happy. I'm just going to throw a little bit of sadness on you guys. Is that cool? I mean, it's just like he's, he's speaking reality. Life's going to be tough, guys. It's going to be hard. But, but over that, overriding that, is the glory of God that will one day be revealed. And the fact that I've been victorious over it all. So here's what he's going to say. And he says, I'm going to equip you guys so that in this world, even though that you will be crushed, killed, persecuted, hated, so on and so forth, I want to make sure that in this world you will have joy and this overwhelming understanding that I've overcome this world. So here's what he is. The first thing he's going to say I'm going to give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 26, verse, uh, chapter 15. But when the Helper comes, he's described as the Helper, comes along to help him. Whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. So he's saying, listen, I will give you the Spirit. He will be a Helper. He will come along, he will help you. The second thing, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 16. Jesus says, I have said these things to you. To keep you from falling away. And listen, I don't want you guys to fall away. And I want to ensure that you don't fall away. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I want, I'm going to remind you of the words that I've spoken to you. This is why, guys, by the way, why we love our Bibles. And then hopefully you love your Bibles. And why saints in the past have loved the Bible. is because the Bible is not just simply sort of an arbitrary word. You just kind of throw it down and just sort of read periodically. It is the words of God inspired profitable for edification, for our growth, to know the heart and mind of God, to be reminded of God's promises and overcoming power. That's it. Okay? Uh, So Jesus is going to say, listen, my words are going to be able to be spoken to you for your encouragement. Verse 2, he says this, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he's offering service to God. But I've said these things to you that when the hour has come, you may remember that I've told you these things. Again, my words are there to be able to encourage you. Uh, the third thing that I noticed in about verse 23 of chapter 16, he says this, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father, in my name he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you shall receive so that your joy might be full. So I think what he's communicating is that in those moments of difficulty and of hardship, there's another beautiful uh, gift that God will give to you, that I'm giving to you. It's the opportunity, the ability to pray and interact, to commune with the Father. That when you're in the throes of difficulty, you can seek God. Oh man, I wish somehow this, this can become like a part of our lives. I mean, you guys ever get frustrated with yourself sometimes? You're like, man, I, 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 wish, I wish I can think this way. But when I'm in the midst of difficulty, rather than, you know, doing whatever, you know, talking to people, but just go to the heart of God and to seek God, and to pray, and to look to Him for my source of comfort. That's what Jesus is saying. Because the Father is there to speak and to listen as you pray. The final thing is about verse 33 is this. Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome this world. The final thing I think is this beautiful picture. Jesus is saying, listen, there's this promise of victory. There's this promise of victory that will one day be yours. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. Don't stop. This is, this is not a message, guys, of 
Guys, just put your hands to the plow and work as hard as you can, because one day, as you just do the best you can, you'll succeed. Now, this is the picture of God saying, you're going to be beaten and bruised, it's going to be hard, you're going to feel like giving up. Here's what Jesus is saying. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We're all here for you. We are all here for you. We will not let you go. We will give you access to pray. We will protect you by the power of the Spirit. The Word of God will come and flood into your heart like streams of refreshment at those moments where you need it the most. We are here for you. We will not let you fall. We will not let you stumble. And in those moments where it gets difficult and tough and hard and you feel like just giving in, God the Father, God the Spirit, and triune power will come and be our strength. This is God saying, I will do it all for you. Just trust me. Just trust me. Just trust me. I'm going to read the passage all the way through. And I'm going to finish with some things. And then we'll be done. We'll finish with some worship here. I want you to listen to this. Pick it up at about verse 18. We'll read through it. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're out of this world, not in this world, I have chosen you out of this world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. The servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But if all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If, not, if, if I had not come and spoke to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father. And if I had not done anything uh, among them, or done among them the works that I had done, or had no one else had done, they would not be guilty of sins. But now they had seen and they'd hated both me and my father. And the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. So here's what Jesus is saying. These people are going to hate you. But the reality is he's saying, I've communicated to them who I am. They know who I am. In other words, they're without excuse. Saying, if I, if I came, they had no idea who I was. I didn't reveal to them who I was. Um, these guys would probably still be in a state of ignorance. And God will deal with them on that level. But now they do know who I am, they do know who the Father is, they do know who my followers are, and yet now they're even more guilty because they've got the truth and they've chosen to not operate in accordance with the truth. He goes on verse uh, 26. When the Helper comes, He will send you uh, from the Father, that whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me and you will also bear witness because... You have been with me from the beginning. Verse six, uh, chapter 16, verse 1, he says, I have said all of these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever calls you will actually think that he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when the hour has come, you will remember that I told you them. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now, I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because they go to the Father, and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Verse 12, says, I still have many things to say to you, but, I cannot, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but, when, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and when... Uh, and he will endure, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, and he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And all that the Father has is mine. Think about that one. All that the Father has 
is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Amazing. This relationship that God engages with, with us. Verse 16 says, A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while you will see me no more. So some of the disciples said to him, said to one another, what is this that he, that he says to us, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while you will see me, because I'm going to the Father. So they sang, what does he mean by a little while? And when, when do you know, uh, we do not know what he's talking about. And then Jesus knew that they had asked him, so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I mean by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you guys will uh, weep, lament, and the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, for your sorrow will be turned into joy. When a woman is given birth, she has sorrow, because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that the human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow. But But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take away your joy from you. In that day, you will ask me, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, I will give it to you. Until now, I've asked nothing in your name. And ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak in figures of speech, but I will speak plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask in the Father on your behalf, for the Father loves you because you love me. And I believe that I have come from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world. And I'm now leaving this world and going back to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know now we know all things and do not need anyone to question you and we and need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you have come from God. Then Jesus answered, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed is now come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone, yet I will not be alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation. Take heart, I have overcome the world. From this passage, from the history, 2,000 years, people that believe this have gone to the world. Believing. That their greatest desire in life is to be just like their master. Redeemed by Jesus. Brought into fellowship with the Father. Sent out into this world as missionaries, whatever it is they do, wherever it is they go, helped, aided, protected by God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son, leading, guiding, enabling, protecting, promising, and in the midst of the crushing, we can endure because Jesus has overcome. I want to finish real fast with some voices of the past. I've asked a few people to come up and, and to read. I've given them some little cards to read. And basically, these are the stories of some saints that have gone before us in the past. They're already in glory. But what I want you to listen to in these voices from the past, I want you to listen to them. And I want you to, to, to listen to how they speak in John chapter 15 and John 16 language. We're in the midst of the crushing and the pain and the tribulation and the hardship that they endure, the one thing that they have in their heart is this promise that Christ will never let them go. So I'll have the worship team come on up, and I'll have them come on up, and they'll read these passages, these little stories. But I want you to listen to them as voices in the past, speaking to us today, declaring, God is great. He's a treasure to be valued by us to be valued by us over anything else in his life. To be treasured by us as, as something that's even more valuable than anything else that we can cling to or hold on to in this life. To love, to value, to cherish, 
to recognize that, yes, in this world, things will be tough, things will be hard, there will be difficulty, we'll be misunderstood, we'll try to serve God, love Jesus with our hearts to the best that we can, people will still misinterpret us. Jesus says, be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. And there's been many saints that have really clung to the fact the number one desire they have in their life is to be just like their master. Be just like Jesus. I want you to listen to the voices of these past. If you guys want, you can just put your head down, just listen. We'll be ready for worship and we'll kind of transition right after this into some worship. And we'll give our tithes and our offerings to the Lord. This is how we'll respond. If you're here and you need prayer for anything that's going on, we have a little place up here. We'd love to have you be prayed for if there's anything that's going on in your life. Um, but I just want you to listen to these voices of the past. I'm going to finish with a verse after they're done, and then we'll sing some songs of worship and praise and love, and we'll dismiss you guys. So listen to these voices. Polycarp in 168 AD. Polycarp was an old man and disciple of John the Apostle. He was arrested for refusing to worship um, the emperor. The judge said, Deny your allegiance to Christ, and I will set you free. Polycarp responded, Eighty-six years I have now served Christ, and he has never done me any wrong. How then can I blaspheme the king and my savior? The judge cried loudly three times, Polycarp has confessed himself to be a Christian. The, mon- the mob responded in fury. He has taught many to stop sacrificing and stop worshiping our gods. So he took Polycarp to the stake, and they were going to nail him there. He spoke up and said, Leave me alone as I am. For he who has given me strength to endure the fire, he will also enable me, without your nails, to stand within the fire. They merely tied him to the stake, lit the fires, and he died. St. Agatha, executed in 250 A.D. Being born of a distinguished Sicilian nobility, she was arrested for helping and serving the poor. Her reply to those who arrested her was this, Our nobility lies in this, that we are the servants of Christ. Being unwilling to deny her allegiance to Christ for the worship of the emperor, she was sentenced to death by the sword. When the day came for her to die, seeing the executioner ready with sword in hand, she said, I am now glad, I am happy that you have come. I am willing to receive into my bosom the full length of your sword and thus be married to Christ my spouse. O Christ, my soul seeks you alone. John Huss, the Czech reformer, executed July 6, 1415. The wood was piled all around him up to his chin. Before applying the torch, Louis of Bavaria, the marshal of the empire, approached and for the last time implored him to save his life and renounce his errors. Huss replied, what errors should I renounce? I am guilty of none. I call God to be my witness that all that I have written and preached has been with the view of rescuing souls from sin and hell. And therefore, most joyfully, I will confirm with my blood that truth which I have written and preached. At the hearing of these words, they departed from him. The fire was applied. The flames blazed upward. Hus shouted to the people gathered, Do not believe that I have taught anything but the truth. Renounce your heir, shouted the Duke of Bavaria. Huss replied again, I have taught no heir. The truth that I have taught I will seal with my blood. Huss began to sing with a loud voice, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And when he began to sing this for the third time, the wind blew and the flame in his face so that it choked him. The last words heard, heard being sung from his lips, were glory to glory be to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Paul the Apostle said this For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us in Christ. So what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will we not also, with him, graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? God who justifies. Who is the condemned? Christ is the one who died. Now, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am certain that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ. That is victory. Victory. The cross. Pray that you guys would know that, that you would be affected by that, that would change your heart, change your perspective about life. Your life doesn't belong to you, it belongs to Jesus. That you would use your life to glorify God everywhere you're at, using the talents, using the gift that God's given you. Jesus, right now, I just pray that you would fall afresh upon us. Lord, let uh, our hearts be raised with worship and thanksgiving to you. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross and the gift that you've given us. Thank you for the victory.